This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. You are listening to an episode of New Books in Folklore, which is just one of the many podcast channels that you can find on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Hopkin. I'm one of the hosts of this channel. And today my guest is David J. Puglia. Now, David and I first met way back in the spring of 2010 when he was a graduate student in the Folk Studies Master's Program at Western Kentucky University. And I was visiting the campus ahead of enrolling in the same program later that year. But by the time I actually embarked on my degree there, David had moved on to Penn State to start on his PhD in American Studies. Now he's an assistant professor at Bronx Community College, which is part of the City University of New York. And he's joined us to talk about his latest book, which was published just last year. It's called Tradition, Urban Identity and the Baltimore Hun, The Folk in the City. And it is, as its very first sentence notes, a book about urban folklore and its meaning in the modern world. David Puglia, welcome to New Books in Folklore. It's great to be on here with you, Rachel. Thanks for inviting me. I'm a big fan of the podcast, and I remember our first meeting years ago very well. <laughs> and did I say that right, Baltimore Hun? Uh, that is that is correct, although it's interesting um, that you are concerned about that because I noticed um, Gordon Ramsay, the British chef, uh, is also a big part of the story, and he also has uh, trouble pronouncing the word when he first hears it. So I guess it's not a common British word. Well, and also the way it's spelt, H-O-N, mm-hmm. I want to say hon. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. That's what he does, too. <laughs> anyway, before we get to the book, which includes much about Gordon Ramsay, I wondered if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself and perhaps your How I Came to Be a Folklorist story, which is what my colleague on this podcast, fellow host Tim Thurston, calls the folklore origin story. Right, right. So I definitely have one. So my senior year at the University of Maryland, I really just wanted to take this class called Dinosaurs that I'd had my eye on the entire time I'd been there, or this kinesiology class called Trampoline. But the super seniors who had more credits to me than me, uh, they got there first, and I wasn't able to sign up for that class. And I just needed some electives before I was going to head off to law school. And uh, so I saw this class called Folklore. And I remembered I really liked Greek and Roman mythology in elementary school. But I didn't know anything beyond that. So I signed up on a whim, not knowing anything more. And uh, I took this class with a folklorist named Barry Lee Pearson. And I had no idea what to expect. But I walked in the classroom and he starts talking about goat man and blues music and the latrinalia that students are writing on the inside of bathroom stalls. And I was just astounded. I didn't realize that this was even 
the, uh, a subject that was allowed to be studied. Um, so by the end of that semester, I had renounced law school, renounced my political science degree, decided I was definitely going to be a folklorist. Uh, but I had no idea how to do that. I just knew that I know this one guy, Barry Lee Pearson, he's a folklorist, and he told me that he went to Indiana University and studied with Stiff Thompson. And I saw that he was a folklorist, so it must be something you can do. And I just went from there. And uh, I stumbled upon, as Rachel, you eventually did as well, this folk studies program at Western Kentucky University. And uh, I was really drawn to this tradition they had of pinning sock monkeys on graduate students when they uh, completed the degree. I thought, ah, that, that's a tradition that good. They must be good year round as well. So I want to say I, I decided to go there to be with Michael Ann Williams and Erica Brady and Tim Evans. But really, I had no idea at that point any folklorists besides um, Joseph Campbell and Jan Brunvan. Uh, but I decided to pack up, head over there, and it was just dumb luck. I ended up in a great program. And from there, I ended up at uh, Penn State with Simon Bronner, another great program. And now I'm up in the Bronx preaching the word to the masses. So I became a folklorist. So before we continue, can you tell us how you define folklore? So, you know, Rachel, this is my 11th year thinking about that very question and full time, really. And I still have to admit, I don't have a super satisfying answer. But I think that's true for most honest folklorists. So I, I, I'll try to my best to give you at least how I use it in this book. Um, the best definitions I hear are often working definitions that suit that study in particular, but don't necessarily translate well from, say, like folk music to vernacular architecture. At least in my book, I'd say my working definition is something like cultural practices that suggest a grassroots origin and appear meaningful to people. And so for me, when I think about folklore, the folk is the part that's more important than the lore, which I try to hint at in the subtitle of the book. The folk in the city. Exactly. And by folk, I didn't mean a particular class of people, but rather I was thinking of the process that's possible anywhere. So maybe something that you might call folking or folklorizing, as uh, another guest who was on this podcast called it. So, for example, in Baltimore, if we just looked at lore, we like as a conservative oral tradition, we'd have the word hun, maybe some of these distinctive Baltimore words that we might talk about later, maybe the, the legend of the Poe toaster and some other Baltimore legends. But it would also be similarly unsatisfying to just look at the folk and say, okay, I think the folk is this blue collar uh, white woman that gets seen all around the city. Uh, let's just hunt them down in Hamden or Hollandtown. Uh, but I think that'd be re too restrictive too. So instead of worrying about definition and worrying more about the folk process at play uh, and looking at how the folk process was alive in the city and that it had something to do with these repeated grassroots cultural practices and often these had to do with Han, uh, I was able to appreciate the whole folk process um, and see how the city created their own folklore. And so while some might say, ah, I'm not really sure if, if this part of your book, I don't know if I would really classify that as folklore. That's okay, because I think it's what the folk themselves, what the residents of Baltimore considered to be their folklore. So that's a way to work around the definition there. So this is my, my long-winded way of saying, I don't know, but if you look at what the folk consider the folk, I think it has something to do with these repeated cultural practices that are meaningful to them. 
and seem to be from around here, wherever that is. Before we move on, we should say that you are originally from Baltimore, is that right? That's correct. I was born in Baltimore, Johns Hopkins. And this word, hon or hun, I know a lot of the book is explaining what it means because it's a complex term when you start to investigate it. But can you explain what this word is? Right, right. This is this is a good thing to uh, to start out with. So hun is short for honey. So it's there's a lot of words that have to do with sweet things that we that we call each other, sweetie, honey. There's lots of these. And it makes sense uh, in the area because especially in Appalachia, there's this tradition of even men referring to each other as honey. It's okay. It's, it's a very masculine thing for one uh, grown man to call another grown man honey. This is a uh, near this is near that area. It had a lot of migration from that area. And it was shortened from honey to hun. And But the rules stay the same, that any person can call any other person hun. In some ways, at least some people argue it's a very inclusive word because of that. Now, hun connects to this idea of balmeries, which is just kind of the Baltimore way of saying uh, Baltimore, balmer, and then adding ease at the end to show that it's a, a type of language. So while hun is is just one part of that, there's also all these other words that people... So for example, I'm probably, even though I'm originally from Baltimore, I'm probably not a great example of this accent. But in the Baltimore uh, dialect, one of the classic examples is orange juice, which is pronounced orange juice, or um, uh, going to the beach, which is pronounced, or in the dialect is going down the ocean, or um, uh, the kitchen sink, which is the kitchen zinc. And uh, these are, are considered balmeries. And whether balmeries is kind of a stigmatized thing that's associated with the working class or blue collar, or whether it's something to be celebrated. It's this, this rootedness and authenticity. That is where the debate comes up. And Hun often embodies all of those ideas combined. We'll move on to hear about the debate in a minute. But your book has an introduction, then five chapters in the conclusion. Um, and in the first chapter, you're really looking at why urban folklore is worth studying and also about the history of the study of urban folklore. And I love chapters like this because they, they're very kind of useful for your fellow folklorists to just get a quick lowdown on how this came to be a subject. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Right, right. I'm glad you appreciate that. And that was my goal. <laughs> not, not to say, certainly not to say that I'm the first person to do this, but to have a chapter where people who want to do this now can quickly become oriented to the study of urban folklore. So you're right. I don't, I don't dive straight in. I take a step back and I try to make an argument about why we should do work in the city and perhaps try to make, um, stoke a little excitement for uh, doing urban and also suburban folklore work. Uh, and I'll just point out as a little background. I, I wrote this, most of this while I was living outside of Baltimore, but most of the book. But when I got to the introduction, I wrote it last, as most authors do. And uh, I was now living in Manhattan. I'd accepted a job with CUNY. I'm living in Manhattan. So I'm writing this chapter about urban folklore <clears throat> while living in the city. And all all these ideas uh, are just growing exponentially in my mind, the possibilities of urban folklore studies. So 
The reason I think that uh, it's important that we study urban folklore is that since the 1920s, more Americans have lived in urban and suburban areas than in rural landscapes. So while you might not first think of folklore, uh, or when you think of city landscape, or think of the city landscape when you think of folklore, cities often claim distinctive identities by publicizing their folk traditions. And we know about these, like Mardi Gras in New Orleans, or New Year's Eve in Times Square in New York City, or the Electric Blues in Chicago. And I think rather than the old notion that folklore survives because of isolation or backwardsness of remote communities, I try to show here that cities maintain and construct folklore for residents to have a sense of place, uh, especially in our modern transient world. So rather than folklore being displaced by the modern suburbs or urban city, uh, it actually fosters the production of even more folklore And I hope that folklorists would see this as an opportunity to account for these emerging living traditions in cities that residents use to help them adapt to the city, to help them navigate the city. So I think in some ways we have so many different things we can do in the city as urban folklorists. Or I also like the word metropolitan folklorists, where it doesn't mean you have to be in the city center, but just this idea, the opposite of rural areas. And so, like, of course, we have our migratory traditions that go into cities like hillbilly music in Detroit or Cincinnati Chili or the Giglio Parade in Brooklyn. Um, but then we also have things like the sidewalk and stickball games in New York City, the painted screens in Baltimore, the storefront botanicas in Los Angeles. And then I think most important of all is, at least for me, is this idea of, of urban or suburban or metropolitan folklore as referring to this entire constellation of folklore in the modern world, where we look at folklore as it interacts with political, economic, technological realities of city life, and how residents use it to adapt to life there. So that's that's my my general uh, introduction that I try to give before diving into some Baltimore specifics. So you come to Baltimore specifics in the second chapter, which is called Establishing the City. And you're basically telling the reader what the city is like in all sorts of different ways, including the way that it's been captured in popular culture. So I think one of the ways the city is known by many people is via The Wire, uh, David Simon's long running and very highly rated TV series set in a drug neighborhood of Baltimore. I think I'm right in saying. And it's maybe not uh, the image of a city that its chamber of commerce might want to present. I I think you're right. I think a a lot of the Baltimore image has to do with whatever the most uh, recent and prominent media coverage of it is. So certainly recently, The Wire, and even being originally from Baltimore, that still had a lot of an effect on me. Also, the films of John Waters uh, are important uh, in, in this this whole Hun tradition and um, also get these nostalgic films of Barry Levinson. So wh- what I was trying to do in this uh, establishing the city was like, like in all ethnographic studies, I wanted to introduce Baltimore historically and culturally uh, to demonstrate for scholars who wanted to do this, the important starting ground, but also to demonstrate for people who don't have any real feel for Baltimore, both what it is quantitatively, it, 
laying out the facts of Baltimore, but also how Baltimoreans and people in uh, the region, how they react to their own city or to their neighbor, to the neighbor city. Uh, so by trying to give this idea of Baltimore and Baltimore, you certainly have to cover the, the symbols or traditions that seem to get spread about the city. And um, these, these are like eating blue crabs, always well dusted with uh, Old Bay. Um, this, this particular type of beer, uh, National Bohemian, often called Natty Bow, that you can always find in Baltimore. You often can't find even just a little bit from there. Uh, these red brick row houses that just go, uh, that seem to just stretch on with these formstone facades, polished white marble steps, and uh, various dedications to certain uh, institutions, especially uh, sports teams like the Baltimore Orioles. And also, another thing I think it's important when you're trying to establish, okay, how do, does the city see themselves? There actually have been surveys done, and Baltimoreans frequently refer to themselves as quirky, funky, bizarre, down-to-earth. And why I think that's important to note is what they're doing is they're contrasting themselves with the, the closest major city, Washington, D.C., who's none of those things. And it fits in very well to this Hun tradition as we, we go forward saying, oh, yes, it, that is uh, an embodiment or a performance of these values that when surveyed, Baltimoreans say that they are. Uh, now, but also I think this is another important thing to keep in mind when we are looking at this, this study in particular, when we're thinking about Baltimore, is the many conflicts that Baltimore has. So there was the, the unrest and the protests just a few years ago. And Baltimore frequently is actually a harbinger for these oncoming social movements. And while I don't describe to the theory myself, there's certainly an idea that some cities are more folk than others, usually ones that have this tough, gritty, blue-collar, industrial, uh, maybe hard-on-their-luck image, and are filled with interesting characters. And while, like I said, I don't subscribe to this myself, if you were to follow that definition, Baltimore certainly does fit that description. Uh, so the Hun, in a way... Uh, fits into this long-standing campaign that if you go through the history of Baltimore, Baltimore is always trying to find a way to unify itself. It has all these different interests, all these different parties at work. And there's been a lot. There's been something called the Oriole Festival a long time ago. There's the Charm City campaign to uh, name, to give this, the city a new nickname, the Believe campaign, which used to be all over benches in Baltimore. Um and I think the Hun is yet another one of these distinctive traditions that are used to try to unify uh, a city that is is very diverse. And yet you also say that this Hun points to a particular kind of working class vernacular, white image. It also is associated with waitresses, with big beehive hairdos and pink flamingos and things like this. So although some people are trying to use it as a unifying thing, it also sounds kind of exclusionary as well. Definitely. So it's it's uh, an interesting thing to have a, a, a symbol of a city um, be someone who is wouldn't be representative just statistically of a large portion of the city 
And I think that is, is the starting point for many of these debates. So um, the Hun woman is this, or the Hun image is this white, blue-collar woman, often from one of these working-class neighborhoods in Baltimore. And uh, if you look in the history of, of Baltimore, that, that woman certainly exists and did exist. But Baltimore has had massive change between the mid-20th century and today, or even just a few decades after the mid-20th century. And in that time, Baltimore became a uh, majority African American city, two thirds African American city, and so the idea of having the Hun as an image, if we're talking about the image, um, as representative, well, it's it's not going to be representative in to a large portion of the city. Yet, nonetheless, it seems to be a, a, a popular image. And why why it remains to be a popular image is again another another one of the many debates when trying to come up with this Baltimore city tradition. And so you examine some of these debates in the next three chapters, uh, in each of which you focus on a particular issue or case study. Chapter three it's called Conjuring the City, and we learn about Hun Man. <laughs> That's right. So starting starting right here, starting with this part of the book, uh, I have three chapters that offer narrative case studies of different aspects of um, of the Hun, starting with uh, the Hun man. And so in my in my mind, this is the heart of the book. So if anyone's listening and was thinking about reading the book, was like, oh, I only have an hour or two, just just start here. And at the very least, there's a good quirky story about um, American city life in the late 20th and 21st century here. So about Hun Man. Hun Man is uh, this highway vandal and folk hero who, in the 1990s, started to stick this temporary Hun edition onto a sign on the Baltimore-Washington Parkway, a Welcome to Baltimore sign that's in the median in the middle of the road. So what he would do is he would make a daily practice of sneaking up to the sign in the median and stapling, not spray painting, but stapling the words Hun onto the road's welcome sign. Uh, this seems like such a trivial thing, but it turned this literal sign turned into a figurative sign of things to come. And uh, so some people loved having this addition on there because it, it showcased the, the quirky down to earth um, roots of Baltimore. But Others felt differently. So it, it actually ignited enough a con of a controversy that it went all the way to the state house in Annapolis and nearly cost $1 million in funding from the city. And the reason was that state officials from white neighborhoods in Baltimore wanted to make the sign permanent. And how they did that is they passed a bill that would withhold funding from the roads until that happened. And it, it did in fact pass, although it, it later failed. So it passed at first through the Senate, but then later failed. But anyway, Hun Man's mission proved to be the first, it's why I like to start here, it was the first example of what would later become a trend of Baltimore spoke, folk speech being invoked as an attempt to create a local tradition that connected people to place. 
So in the 1990s, we're seeing this, what once stigmatized Walmarie's, uh, transforming into an esteemed word that tied local roots and native city to like a native city identity. And uh, this is interesting because it puts the, at least for our folklorists, because it puts the invention of tradition on display in Baltimore. The word hunt had been around for many years and there was some self-awareness of this, but it, it had never evoked controversy or debates or performances like this. And had the, the debates that come out aren't among scholars. These are debates that real people are having right there. So, for example, was Hun a racist ode to whiter days of Baltimore since it's um, no longer a majority white city, but it's agreed upon that it's something that's only said usually by white people? Or is Hun associated with blue collar neighborhoods? Is this a blue collar campaign? Or is this, or is Hun, is the only people who like Hun the gentrifiers? They love this idea of having some rooted culture, even if it's not their own culture. Or is this some sort of um, anti-woman campaign? Because there's people talk about getting hunned, like, oh, she hunned me, or he, he just hunned me to death. What does being hunned to death mean? <laughs> so, so being hunned to death is when uh, you, you feel like you're being demeaned because if you, somebody keeps referring to you as hun. I'm not sure that that's necessarily how it's used most frequently in... Uh, Baltimore, but what it feel, when somebody feels like they're being diminished because they're they're oh hon you got to do it like this hon it, it's like they're being juvenileized or something. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Would it be a little bit like a man constantly calling a woman doll instead of her name or something like that? Exactly. That is a great example. Yes. So, so all, all these debates are going on, um, or, you know, or, or is Hun the ultimate, um, is it the ultimate equalizer? Because, you know, we have ma'am, sir, miss, missus, uh, people can choose their own pronouns, but Hun, Hun's the same for everyone. So there's all these different debates. And I think what's interesting is it's the folk themselves. They're having these debates. So if you talk to people at Hunfest or if I'm reading, uh, and this was especially great, reading the comments in blogs or the comments at the end of newspaper articles. And it's like the folk themselves are having their own little graduate seminar on um, what tradition means, what's authentic, who, what representation means. So Hun ended up being this great little uh, channel into various issues of race and class and gender and it showed implications because there were questions about whether it was honoring this blue collar heritage of Baltimore or whether it was parodying these people and uh, with with the word it's there but then as we continue and look at the the image of who who becomes the capital H Hun it, it just increases. I like the way you've noted that in a way that similar to folklore's application in 19th century European nation building, 
Han man used a piece of Baltimore folk speech in an attempt to create a local condition that connected people to place. I thought that was a really interesting analogy. And I think it's true. Uh, much like these little principalities that want to become nations in Europe, I, the United States is going through, we're already a young country, and then most of our cities are much younger than that. And then if you're not New York or Los Angeles, there's some inferiority complex there. And I think if we look at different cities, certainly Baltimore in my case, but many American cities, all American cities even, uh, use tradition uh, to try to uh, create a sense of identity for the people who the people who live there. So what happened at the end of this debate about Hunman and his signs? So the, the Hunman's, I mean, he puts the sign up, Hun, the, uh, they rip them down. He, it's, we have... It gets the debate started, um, but eventually Hun Man dies. And there is, Hun Man does have a son. His name is Hun Sun. And he, he carries on for a little while. But the this fades away. But it does start an era where we see a whole lot of other conscious cultural work on this idea of Hun the word or Hun the image. So we have these different lexicons and dictionaries that come out on the time at the time about people writing about Balmeries. Um, and then we also have Denise Whiting, who will start her Cafe Hun, and then she'll later start the Hun Fest. And she is, of, in addition to John Waters and many other people, an important figure that transitions the word from the word Hun to this idea of the Hun, the person most likely to say Hun, these blue-collar white women, the person who graces the cover of my book, um, that that's the next stage, taking the Hun to the capital H Hun. And Denise Whiting had a lot to do with Hun Fest, which you mentioned a little bit earlier, and which is the subject of your next chapter, Performing the City, in which you're examining how city residents use urban folklore to make meaning by performing vernacular culture through festive traditions. Many festivals paradoxically appear to demonstrate cultural strength at the same moment that their staging points to cultural weakening. So what are you talking about there? So we have this, uh, this festival in Baltimore uh, called Hunfest. And in, in the quote you just read, what I'm pointing to is that at this point in, in uh, Baltimore's history, many people, actually including John Waters himself, will point out that this woman that we're thinking of as the Hun did exist in Baltimore, but she's she's in nursing homes now. This isn't the common image that you're going to see in Baltimore these days. This was a mid 20th century thing. Yet the festival only begins in the 90s and it only grows to be huge in the 2000s. So at the same time that we have this culture, the decline of the Hun in the field, in the actual city, it becomes celebrated as the heritage of, of Baltimore, at least in the Hunfest venue. So um, I, I can tell you a little bit, a little bit about this this festival because I think it's a very interesting thing. Folklore certainly love to study festivals, but I think uh, a, a fair question would be: but Is this even a folk festival? It's run by. Uh, or at least it's sponsored by a business. It um, it's it's annual, but it has rules that are uh, set by that business. 
it has <clears throat> certain commercial aspects to it. But um, it's it's still an important grassroots festival in that what it does is it celebrates this image, but it celebrates the folk image only through revelers and participants being willing to come to Hamden and the Avenue on that day and perform this Baltimore identity of the Hun for each other. So I should just say that Hamden's a, a neighborhood within Baltimore. It, it is. In, it's an interesting neighborhood within Baltimore. It's whiter than uh, many neighborhoods in Baltimore. And also, if you were to ever go to Baltimore, you basically get funneled into the Inner Harbor, which is this area in in the center, a nice area in the very center of Baltimore. And there's lots of things for tourists to do. And then it's Baltimore's not the type of city where you're encouraged to wander around because there are areas just outside of the inner harbor to the east and the west that are considered quite dangerous. Hamden, which is a nice place for tourists to visit, is way up in North Baltimore. And why I think that's important is that I, I think Hamden becomes both a, a literal stage because there's the best hunt contest and people perform their Baltimore identity on that stage at Hunfest. But then it also becomes a figurative stage. It's it's not a 100% African-American neighborhood as parts of East and West Baltimore are, but it's not a super gentrified uh, neighborhood just yet either, although many would say it's, it's well on its way. But it's, it's kind of a, a mix. And because of that, or at least in even a mix that leans uh, white, and because of that, I see this neighborhood as being this place where people are trying to negotiate like what Baltimore will become, um, what it means to be a Baltimorean. It's this, it's this more neutral stage to be able to do that. Tell us more about the actual festival. What does it consist of? So the, the actual festival itself is this, um, this yearly spectacle that's put on by this restaurant, Cafe Hun and Denise Whiting. And during the day, people will come and uh, dress up, mostly women, but men can do this as well, uh, and dress up as this depiction of the the Baltimore Hun. So um, Maryland artist Matt Long drew the, the Hun that's on the cover of my book, uh, and she, she's got the kind of the classic look going here. So she's got the beehive hairdo, the cat eye glasses. She's wearing the leopard print. She's got the pink boa. And what she is reminiscent of is in some ways a, a 1950s era woman. Uh, but then what others point out is what she's reminiscent of is women in John Waters films, uh, especially Hairspray, which all take place in Baltimore or just outside of Baltimore. And uh, so you could think of Hunfest in numerous ways. Uh, the organizers themselves will tell you that they've said this many times on record saying this, that this is a celebration of Baltimore's working women. And so that's that's possible. Uh, another another interpretation, in a way, uh, that I've heard, or at least I've seen some people act in this way, that is is kind of like a a, a fan, a John Water, an unspoken John Waters film fan club, where they're referencing uh, his his 
his characters of Baltimore. Um, but that's not that's not official. Then then there's also women from the neighborhood or from other nearby neighborhoods that still see this as the legitimate heritage, their, their legitimate Baltimore heritage, that this isn't how they dress on a day-to-day basis, but this is how their mothers or their grandmothers dressed. And they are embracing that uh, as a sense of their heritage, their Baltimore heritage, their Baltimore identity. And the, the crowning jewel of Hunfest is the best Hun contest. So anybody can parade in the streets, but only the, the best can perform to win the best Hun contest on the stage. And that's really interesting, too, because the performances, in addition to having to look the part of the Hun, with the hair probably being the most important, this big uh, beehive hair, you also have to do your Baltimore performance. So you have to speak in Balmeries. You have to know which local symbols of Baltimore identity to embrace, bit crabs or uh, duck pin bowling or national bohemian beer. And it, on the stage that we see these performances uh, and even really negotiations of Baltimore identity. And I think to throw a little, uh, cause it's okay. The, the argument of, well, is this an exclusionary white practice? Uh, if you look at the, the pictures in the book, I thought the picture I included, and I didn't include it for this reason. I just thought it was one of the best pictures I'd ever taken from that song contest. But African-American women participate and have won the best ton contest, which just makes it, I think, all the more interesting to me. You talk throughout this book about this move of a stigmatized vernacular to an esteemed vernacular, which I think is a phrase that you've invented, right? Yeah, yes, the, the esteemed vernacular part anyway. Can you tell us a little bit about this transition and what the esteemed vernacular is? Why I like this is that I think this is the part that's applicable to anyone who wants to pursue a similar study in another city. So we have in the Baltimore Oral History Collection, we actually have on record informants talking about how they tried to throw off their Baltimore accent because it was associated with the working class. So if you wanted to rise in status, you didn't want to have this Balmerese accent. And, uh, and so people would purposely try to get rid of it. So it was the, the accent was very much a stigmatized vernacular. And what we're seeing in Baltimore, and then Barbara Johnstone has also written about the same thing in Pittsburgh, is that as we transition from this this stigmatized vernacular to this esteemed vernacular, the the dialect itself, words and words from the dialect went from being stigmatized, at least in certain situations, to being esteemed because in these more mobile, transient cities, the dialect and uh, these particular words became ways of showing a rootedness and a local authenticity that you can't, that you that seems almost natural, that you can't buy. You have to have earned that. Although, of course, that's not actually the case. And what we see is that there are people, there are ways, consumable ways to tap into this esteemed vernacular, whether it's wearing a t-shirt that says Balmer, B-A-W-L-M-E-R on it, or dressing up as Hun and winning 
the hunt, uh, the best hunt contest, even though you've only re- moved to Baltimore in a couple, uh, or, you know, a couple years ago, which has happened. So, uh, on one hand, the esteemed vernacular is when these once uh, stigmatized forms become representative of an authentic uh, and rooted local identity. But on the other hand, uh, they they are consumable. They they aren't as natural or as authentic as we think. They're, we people find ways to be able to grasp them and take them on, which is probably in our mobile American society. It's probably it might even be a good thing. In chapter five, uh, it's called claiming the city, and you're now detailing what happens when somebody is staking a claim, maybe a claim too far on the term hon, 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 hon. <laughs> We're, we're back with Denise White, and this is where we meet Gordon Ramsay, rather surprisingly. That's that's right. So what what small attention my research has received, it's it's mostly been this the previous chapter, the Hunfest chapter that we just, and the Hun Image chapter that we just discussed that um, people have been drawn to, which makes sense because uh, th- that whole thing is very colorful, and theatrical, and exciting. But it's actually this chapter th- that's hun- called Huntroversy. Um, is what's going on here. Controversy. Uh, it's actually my favorite chapter. And I think that's because the subject is even more so than the other ones, really the one where the folklorist gets to pull out his tool bag and use his skill set uh, to try to answer these questions. And so the chapter asks the question, who owns the word hun? And uh, it, it's, it's interesting because hun, it's it's, it's a word that's heard throughout the country. It's not a Baltimore-specific word, but it's a word with special Baltimore attachment. And so I'll give the reading rainbow version of what happened with this Hun trademark controversy. And then if anybody's interested, you can read the entire thing. So controversy started when this, uh, this woman, Denise Whiting, the owner of Cafe Hun and the organizer and owner of Hunfest, bragged that she took ownership of the word hunt. And uh, I think the instant reaction for most people would be like, wait, what, can you even do that? Can you say you own a word? And it turned out that at least according to lawyers and for, for a while anyway, yes, she in fact could do that. Uh, so this offhand boast that she actually gave in an interview that was on a completely different topic set off this chain of events that led to muzzling in the press. Um, it led to litigation, both civil and criminal. Uh, it led to protests. There were boycotts. And there was a near shuttering even of her restaurant, which is why Gordon Ramsay eventually gets involved in this story. So this went on for nearly a year, all over the idea of who owns Hun and the idea that um, that... Denise Whiting had either trademarked, which is what she claimed she did, or copyrighted, which she didn't claim she had done, but is what people took that to mean. Uh, so ironically, and this is my favorite part of the story, is that it was only the diplomacy of celebrity chef and notorious hothead Gordon Ramsay, like the guy from from Kitchen Nightmares and Hell's Kitchen and, and shows like that that loves to make people cry. It took that guy to come in and intervene and, and cool everybody's tempers. So you know something's gone wrong when, when of all people, Gordon Ramsay has to come in. But anyway, what's interesting here, so that's a long story, and I, I detail every every day of it in, uh, in the book. But just to 
instead of um, going into that, just to tell you the, the main ideas that we pull from this, the unavoidable challenge here was that Denise Whiting was trying to find a way to claim private ownership over a phenomenon, this idea of the Hun and Balmeries and Hun image, that was only desirable because the community felt a, collect, a connection to it. They felt this was representative of the collective identity and both the Hun to the word and Hun to image. And so while some people in the newspaper at the time and on blogs and uh, social media, wherever you can track down the remnants of this, uh, saw this as being just a manufactured controversy, I, I don't think so. This, there seemed to be real, authentic, grassroots howls of protest at the idea that a woman uh, or that just woman that a person was attempting to steal what they saw as cherished Baltimore cultural property and heritage. And so I think there's a little lesson in here that folklorists can learn about how to try to defend folk culture. And so one of the problems is that a group in the United States cannot copyright a communal creation. Uh, so, and that's been a problem for folk, for folklorists for a while, but individuals and businesses shouldn't be able to do this either. So that said, some will attempt to, uh, usually through trademark, which is where it's much more possible, the trademark word to say that that word is my brand identifier. Therefore it's my work and only I can use it. Uh, but folklorists need to be, defensive of the public domain here, which is what I think much of our, the work that we're interested in falls under and have a robust defense of the public domain to protect from these apparent uh, attempts at privatizing folk speech. Absolutely. Absolutely. And how does this continue? What happens? So ultimately the restaurant does not go under. I've eaten there several times, and I want to be I want to be clear because I feel like at times Denise Whiting comes off as in the vil- as the villain of this work, and I don't think she's a villain. I actually think she's a nice person uh, and has a lot of good ideas. She just made a mistake here, and she's admitted she's made a mistake and apologized for it. She uh, rescinds the the trademark, and that's at the behest of Gordon Ramsay, right? <laughs> it's at the behest of Gordon Ramsay, yes. And I actually include, just to be clear, in the book a picture of her rescinding the uh, the trademark, and so that goes away. People forgive her. Um, the Hunfest still exists. She does circulate. The, the year after this all happens, for some reason, this thing still gets circulated saying, by the way, you're not allowed to have anything here that has my word hun on it. But she, she then says, oh, that was a mistake. I didn't cross that off. It was just the same circular that I sent out last year. So she really has rescinded that, that trademark. Um, and Hunfest still exists. It's the hun image. Uh, and the word hun still are, have importance in the cultural identity of at least some Baltimoreans and certainly the cultural debates of what it means to be Baltimorean and what a Baltimore tradition is. Uh, some other things that we haven't been, haven't mentioned yet, like the, the bus system in uh, or the public transportation system in Baltimore uses the Hun image on their campaign. The Baltimore Ravens use the Hun image in their campaign. So it has a broad currency um, to this, to this day. So 
that's that's the end of the Hun story anyway in my book to this point because now I just have to look to the future and and see what happens next. Yeah, you you at the beginning of this chapter you say uh, one of the challenges of a transition from the stigmatized vernacular to an esteemed vernacular is that the transition fundamentally changes the social and economic motivation behind the production of folklore. And this is a great example of, of what happens when that takes place. Yes. The, so when people realize that uh, certain folkloric forms are worth money, usually not much money, but some money, it, it changes the, the reasons and the, I think the function of folklore. And while I don't think that it means that folklorists shouldn't study those uh, things anymore or embrace uh, it. We certainly have to, and I think this is part of urban folklore in general, see how folklore is interacting with commercial, technological, political scenes that are going on that are, are going to be there in any city. And this is certainly an example of this is not a pure folklore form. It's very much mixed up with ideas of commercialism and popular culture. I'm kind of in, intrigued by what you've just said about this is not a pure folklore form. I'm thinking, what is a pure folklore form? <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe there isn't one, um, but maybe there's some that more are more so or that are less indebted to the mass media and popular culture. Um, this 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 I think is been. You know, on the back of mass media, on popular culture, um, the internet has been important, and that uh, for me that that's really not a concern here, because like as we talked about at the beginning, my concern was more about where what are the residents of Baltimore themselves arguing for as their cultural heritage as their tradition. And certainly not all of them are embracing Hun or the capital H Hun, but a significant proportion of the population is that I think it draws the attention of the folklorist. And you're saying that this is happening across class boundaries, across uh, ethnicity boundaries, across um, uh, professional type boundaries. Is that right? Yes, I think that's at least the the class idea. Certainly, is this idea that this is you know connected to this blue collar heritage uh, and blue collar neighborhoods, but is embraced by many. Um, some say like the gentrifiers or people recently moving to Baltimore because it gives them a sense of of rootedness of local identity. I'd say it's less cross racial, but. There, like I said, there's been um, best Hun winners that weren't white. There, there are always participants at Hunfest that aren't white. So it's certainly not exclusionarily uh, a white practice. And um, yeah, men, men and women participate. So it's it it certainly has buy-in from a variety of groups. In the final chapter, which is the conclusion, you say that the folklore is challenge in the new century is to address cities as contested social spaces in which folklore or the creation of practices that appear folkloric services residents across ethnic lines and you're exhorting folklorists to spend more time looking at city folklore my main point there is not to worry about whether in my example baltimore whether the baltimore hunt is the true representative of baltimore i think that 
although it's interesting to follow the history of it, I don't think that's the most my most important finding here. I think that the debates that I was able to pull up about local cultural heritage that all swirled around this battlefield of the Hun and what the Hun meant and why it was representative or why it was not representative, that was the most important part of this work. And so this is something that's um, replicable elsewhere where we're not necessarily trying to determine what, why this is the perfect uh, tradition for the city, uh, but what the debates that surround this creation of identity, uh, creation of tradition in the city and how they connect to identity are. And so I think for, for me, in what, while I was working on this, simultaneously these massive Baltimore protests are going on. So there's the, if you remember, it's the tragic death of Freddie Gray 2015 protest. Can you just, for listeners who may not be familiar with what happened, can you just give us a little outline? So Fred, the Baltimore Police Department and African-Americans in Baltimore have a long and uh, not great relationship. And they've, they, the Baltimore Police Department has attempted to address this, hiring more black officers, uh, having always having a new mandate every year that we're going to police this way, we're going to police this way. Uh, what happened was that Freddie Gray, in the course of an arrest, died. And there was an investigation. The arrest wasn't handled properly. He wasn't uh, buckled in properly. He, he perhaps was treated too roughly in, even before that. And after that, there was a massive... Um, it's, some people called them a riot. Some people call them a protest. And it is a really important moment in the Black Lives Matters uh, history. And why I bring this up is, well, one, this is happening in while I'm uh, wrapping up this research. And it's, so I think it's, it's representative of what I say in, in the very beginning, that Baltimore has just been this conflicted... Um, hard to unify place from the beginning. This is, this is just one of many protests or riots in the history of Baltimore. Yet nonetheless, at the time, National Public Radio uh, runs this story, Baltimore is not Ferguson. Here's what it really is. In the opening line, Baltimore is usually a friendly city where strangers are often addressed as Hun. So even in this, this, this time of tragedy, in this, this scary time, uh, people were still referencing this idea of Hun, um, of a city that was defined by its friendliness, its openness, its willing to embrace strangers with a word of kindness, that word being Hun, to represent who they are and who they could be going into the future. So the word the question I guess we have to we have to ask like does Hun really heal anything? And it seems to have been attempted to use it in the healing of Baltimore at the time anyway. But then also it seems to uh, highlight the social problems of Baltimore as often as it will alleviate them. So we have an interesting window into Baltimore, although we don't necessarily have some sort of cure through tradition for Baltimore. 
so you, you've received some feedback on this book, and I know most of it has been positive, but you indicated before we started recording that not everything has been. Yeah, I, I, so the, the feedback has been surprisingly positive, um, including actually from Denise Whiting or her representatives themselves that I spoke to. They, I was surprised how positive uh, they were when I spoke to them as that was a little bit of a concern. Um, but the, the one concern has been that the book is too expensive. How much is it? It's close to $90. Oh, goodness. And so I feel you, it, it is too expensive. <laughs> but the reason it's expensive is because it's in hardcover only right now. And that's because that's what libraries purchase. Mm -hmm. So what I recommend for now, if you'd like to read this book, and I agree $90 is expensive, ask your library to buy it for you and uh, read it that way. And be assured, paperback edition is in the future and also that the, the proceeds do not go to the author so i'm not, <laughs> I'm not the one who sets these prices uh yeah and if you if you're interested in my work uh you can i have a website davidjpulia.com or you can follow me on twitter at davidjpulia and pulia is p-u-g-l-i-a this was published last year are you taking a rest or are you working on something new I am working on something new. I have, uh, so I, I am interested in this idea of trademarking folk speech in American cities, and I'd like to do something on that. But I am actually currently hard at work on a new book. And so it's going to be a new contemporary legend casebook with Utah State University Press and the International Society for Contemporary Legend Research which is one of my favorite uh, folkloric societies. And so the title is North American Monsters and Creatures, a Contemporary Legend Casebook. So doing something, doing something a little different for a while. Um, so then the reason for this book is that legendary monsters and creatures are one of the general public's areas of folklore fascination, if not the folklorists. Yeah. Um, so, but at present, there's no great starting point, in my opinion, for folklorists who want to study them. There, there are excellent essays out there, but many of them are scattered across small, out-of-print, non-digitized folklore journals. And so my, my casebook's going to remedy this by bringing together all of these sources um, from these excellent folklore journals that many people probably have, don't even remember, uh, and some of them, that bigger ones that they do and demonstrating the intellectual contribution that folklore has offered to the study of monsters and creatures in North America. So I'm excited. The book has a star-studded cast. I'll mention some of their names. So the contributors, and some of these people have been on your podcast, Jim Leary, Lee Herring, Libby Tucker, Michael Taft, Angus Gillespie, Charles, Charlie Seaman, Richard Dorson, Lisa Gabbert, Carl Lindahl, uh, Gail DeVos, David Clark, Ben Radford. They're all going to be in there. And so we're aiming for a release at the American Folklore Society meeting in Tulsa in 2020. So be on the lookout for that. That sounds fantastic. Okay, well, David Puglia, we have taken up a lot of your time and I'm going to let you go now. But I want to thank you very much for taking part in this new Books in Folklore podcast to talk about tradition, urban identity and the Baltimore Hun, subtitled The Folk in the City. And also to remind listeners that the New Books in Folklore podcast is just one channel of many on the New Books Network, which I encourage you all to check out. And David, have a lovely rest of the day and thank you again. Thanks again, Rachel. <laughs>